Well, this morning we are continuing to make our way through the New Testament letter of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, which is where we left off last week. And the goal this morning is for us to make it all the way through chapter 5, verse 10. So if you don't have a Bible, we also have the passage printed for you there in the bulletin if you want to follow along there. But before we read the passage this morning, let me try to help orient us a bit to the topic because this might be unfamiliar territory to some of us. What the writer is doing here in this text is he is inviting us to consider what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. And for some of us, that may not be the world that we've grown up in. We may not have ever really considered what it means that Jesus is our high priest. So we're going to spend our time considering what it means for him to be that and why it is good news for us. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks and chapters as we continue through this letter is that this is going to be the central and dominant theme of the entire letter. And if we stop to think about it, it makes good sense. Because what you and I most need as fallen and sinful people is not only someone to represent us to God, But we also need someone to reconcile us to him, which is exactly what a priest does. And what this writer is going to say over and over again is that that person is none other than Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man, that it was necessary for him to be both. So in some ways, all we're doing this morning is setting the stage for all the acts that are going to follow. But before we jump in, let's not forget the context of this letter. That the people that he is writing to are tempted to give up on Jesus and to go back to Judaism. And for them, that meant going back to the sacrifices to atone for their sin and going back to the temple and back to the priest to mediate their relationship with God. But time and again, he is reminding them and he's warning them that forgiveness and salvation aren't found there, but it's found only in Jesus. And the way that he goes about that, as we've already seen, is by showing them that all of the Old Testament, that the law and the prophets and the Psalms are all pointing to him and find their ultimate fulfillment in him. So if we were to put it this way, they are the shadow. And Jesus is the substance, he's the reality that they are the candlestick while Jesus is the blazing sun at the center of the solar system, that everything else is orbiting around, that he's the one who gives light and life to all things, that he's the better prophet, he's the better priest, he's the greater Moses and the greater Aaron. So rejecting Jesus for Judaism or for anything else is death and not life. And so the whole letter is an exhortation for them to continue believing the gospel. For them to persevere in faith and to wake up and see the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And that's precisely what he's doing for us here this morning. Now for us here this morning, most likely we are not considering converting to Judaism. But that would miss the point entirely. Because the reality is we are just like them. That we are also tempted to find satisfaction and salvation in something or someone other than Jesus. 
We are tempted to see him as secondary and not primary, like he's the add-on item to the thing that we really want from Amazon. We're tempted to see sin as more satisfying than he is. So all of that to say, even with all the Old Testament talk that we find in this letter, this letter is extremely relevant for you and me today. Because it answers not only the question that they were wrestling with, but it answers the question that you and I wrestle with. And that question is, who is Jesus? And how we answer that question makes all the difference in the world. And what Hebrews is doing is just helping us to see his supremacy. That there really is none like him. That he is everything that we need, and in particular, as our high priest, he is perfectly suited to save us from our sin and secure our access to God and see us through to the end so that we find our rest in him forever, which is what our passage last week was all about. And so if you were here, that passage ended by saying that God's word exposes us. It exposes us that we are naked before God, that it discerns our, our thoughts, our intentions, that we're naked before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, which when you stop to think about that is a terrifying thing. To be fully known and fully exposed. Have you ever had one of those dreams, you know, where you're standing in a crowd of people, maybe you're giving a speech or something, everyone is staring at you and you look down and realize you don't have any clothes on? You ever had one of those dreams? It's terrifying. And you wake up in a sweat and thanking God that it wasn't real. But that's the idea here. God sees us for who we really are. And we can't hide anything from him. And if you're anything like me, we can be really good at fooling people making them think that we are more spiritual than we really are or more put together than we really are. But we can't fool God. He sees everything about us. Nothing is hidden. He sees all of our sins, even the really shameful ones that nobody else knows about. He sees all the things that you are tempted with and all the fears and anxieties that you have at this very moment. He sees all of those things and what that can do is leave us feeling paralyzed. Like we want to crawl up in some hole somewhere to try to hide, which wouldn't do us any good. So on the one hand, God's word shows us our sin and our weakness, but not only that, it doesn't just tell us the bad news. It tells us the good news because it shows us the Savior. And here's the connection to our passage this morning is that if sinful people like us are going to have a relationship with a holy God, and if we're going to have grace to be able to turn from our sin and mercy for when we do sin and be able to stand before God someday and give an account, then you and I need a mediator. We need someone who will represent us, and we need a redeemer someone who can do something about our sin. And what this text is going to help us see is that we have a great high priest who is that for us, not one who just merely knows us fully, but also one who truly loves us. So let me read the passage and then we'll jump in. This is Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray now that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see Jesus that you would help us to see his supremacy this morning, that he is our great high priest and the one that we need. So we pray now, God, for your blessing upon your word. God, that you would speak to us, you would open our eyes to see him and our hearts to adore him this morning. We pray this in his beautiful name. Amen. Before we get into these verses, let me try to help us to get into their skin. These original readers of this letter. Picture this with me. Imagine that you are an Israelite, you're a Jew, and it's the holiest day of the year. It's the day of atonement, and you're in Jerusalem. And people from all over Israel have gathered around the tabernacle to watch from a distance their sins be atoned for. And it's this regular reminder that God is holy and that you are not, that you can't approach him on your own, but you need a mediator. You need someone to represent you, to stand in your place, and you can see the altar of sacrifice there, where throughout the year, countless sacrifices were made and priests performed their duties. And now all of those animals that had been killed and all the blood that had been shed for sin reaches its climax on this one day every year when the high priest who is chosen from among men to represent all men and is called by God at the risk, at the risk of his own life, after making the sacrifice, he leaves the site of the congregation. He goes into the tabernacle and he goes behind the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. 
And it's there where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat are, where God's very presence is. And he's there first to make atonement for himself because he too is a sinner. And he's there to make atonement for the people. And he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat so that all of Israel could be cleansed of their sins and that atonement could be made. And he comes back out. And as an Israelite, you know that, the, that only the high priest can do this, that only he can go behind the veil into the presence of God. You can't do that because you are a sinner and God is holy and you would die. But even, even the high priest could only go there once a year with the blood of the sacrifice to atone for sins. Now, I want us to have that image, that picture in mind as we work our way through this passage because what the writer is saying here that Jesus as our great high priest and he uses the Greek word mega there that Jesus is the mega high priest he is the best of the best but Jesus as our high priest he's better than that he's better both in his person and who he is and he is better in his work and what he actually accomplishes for us and so here's how I want, to, I want to divide the passage this morning. These will serve as our two points. First, I want us to see why Jesus is superior. Why is Jesus better? Why should the original readers of this letter and you and me here this morning, why should we not look to anyone else to represent us or to atone for our sins and to reconcile us to God? And the way that he's going to answer that question is by showing how Jesus is superior to Aaron who's Israel's first high priest. He's the central figure in the Old Testament. He's the brother of Moses. Why Jesus is superior to him and to all the rest. That he's a better mediator. That he provides a better atonement and because of it, he provides us better access to God. So for them to go back to the priests or to the sacrifices or to the temple makes no sense in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. And for us here this morning, I don't want us to miss the main point because we are in the same shoes as they were in, which makes this extremely relevant for us, and that is we all have the same fundamental problem. That sin separates us from God. Do we really believe that? That our sin separates us from God, which means we deserve his wrath and his judgment because of it. You and I cannot go behind the veil on our own merit. And so we also need someone to stand before God for us to provide a sacrifice and to plead our cause. And that's why you and I need a high priest. That's why you and I need Jesus this morning. And we will always need Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second thing, what should our response be in light of who he is and what he has accomplished for us? Because the writer here exhorts us to do something, to apply the message so that's our, our trajectory this morning. So the first thing, why is Jesus a better and superior high priest to Aaron and to all the rest? And the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus really is fully human. Jesus really is a man, which is a big deal, maybe even more than we think because it means that he knows. Now get this, he knows from experience what it is like to walk in your shoes. 
He knows what it's like to be tempted with all the things that you are tempted with on a daily basis. And yet, which makes him set apart as superior is that he never sinned. He never sinned, which means that he's both like us and unlike us. He shares in our humanity, but he doesn't share in our sin. And that makes him the perfect high priest because he can both represent us to God and he can also reconcile us to God because his perfect life in our place provides the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so, for example, we see both of those things. We see his humanity and his holiness there in verse 15. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So he's human, he's like us, he gets it, yet without sin. Now it would be really easy for us to read that verse and not really stop to consider what it actually means and what it actually says. Why is Jesus who's also God, which we're gonna to get to in a minute. The one who is holy and the one that we have sinned against countless times and need to be reconciled to. Why is he able to sympathize with us, to treat us with compassion and mercy? God in the flesh treating us with compassion and mercy. The answer is because he is one of us. He's one of us. Think about that. Jesus shares our humanity, which means as a man, let's not gloss over this, as a man, he has personally experienced all the things that we experience in this life. So think about all the temptations that you face on a daily basis. He knows what that is like and to feel the constant tug of sin. You know, other religions in the world have disinterested and disconnected deities who are so far removed from human experience that they cannot relate. But that is not true in Christianity. And the reason it's not true is because we have Jesus. But the big difference between, between him and us and the big difference between him and all the other priests is that he never sinned. And here's the thing. If he had sinned, then there would be no salvation. And we would still be in our sin this morning and the day of atonement would still be necessary and it would still be insufficient. So think about this with me. Think about from the time he was a little boy all the way to the cross, some 33 years. Every moment of his life, every day, every year that he lived, every situation, every person that he encountered, not once, not even for a nanosecond did Jesus ever have a bad attitude or disobey his parents. Not once did our Savior lie or lust or lose his temper. Never once did he covet or cheat or hate or envy or harbor ill, feeling, Ill feelings toward another. And we could keep listening every other sin imaginable, but Jesus never caved. He never gave in. He always obeyed the will of his father. Now, it's hard for us to even have a category for that because we can't go a single day without sinning. It's hard for us to even relate to that. But here's the danger for us. 
is that when we hear that, we might be tempted to think that because he never sinned, that he never really felt the full weight of temptation and he doesn't really get what it's like to be us. C.S. Lewis, who was always good at poking holes in, in arguments, he imagined someone making that objection that if, if Jesus never sinned and he doesn't know what temptation is like, that he lived a sheltered life and he is out of touch with how strong temptation can be. Let me read to you how Lewis responded to that objection. He says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in Christ. Now get this, Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And brothers and sisters, it is because he never yielded that you and I can be saved today. And we get a window there in verse 7 into how strong and severe that temptation was for Jesus when salvation, when your salvation was on the line. When he was about to go to the cross and he knew what it meant for him to go there. That it meant separation from his father. It meant bearing the full weight of God's wrath against sin, your sin, even though he had none. But he was going there to represent us as our high priest and to be the sinless sacrifice in order to reconcile us to God. Look what it says there. Feel the anguish that Jesus experienced. This is likely referring to when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, there is a lot there, but here's what I want us to see. That during his greatest trial, when the pressure to sin was at its greatest, for him to walk away from the suffering that we caused to walk away from the separation, from becoming the wrath-averting sacrifice for sin, Jesus didn't waver. He remained faithful to the end, and because of his perfect obedience, being the perfect sacrifice, God did hear his prayers and save him from death because he raised him from the dead in the resurrection, which means, I don't want us to miss this, that Jesus' sacrifice for sin, his making atonement as our mediator, as our reconciler through his sinless life was sufficient for our salvation, which is what verse 9 says there. And being made perfect, he became the source 
or the cause of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So all of that to say, there is no one better, friends, to represent us to God, and there is no one better to reconcile us to God. He is the perfect priest. He is fully human, just like us, and yet he never sinned. And because both of those things are true, on the one hand, he can be merciful. He can be sympathetic with our weaknesses because he bears our nature and he knows the particular temptations and struggles and sins that you are wrestling with at this very moment. And here's the thing, he has all the power we need to overcome them. All power. Because he was faithful in all the places that we are unfaithful. And on the other hand, that is precisely the reason why he came. Because we, the sinners, needed a sinless high priest who could atone for our sins. And Jesus is that for us. So that's the first reason why he is superior. Second, that he's also fully God and he is our priest forever. He's God and priest forever. And we see his godness there in verse 14. He tells us that he is Jesus that he's a man, but he is also the son of God. And then in verses five and six, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. But he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, if you were here and you remember back to the first week in this series, this is the same psalm that he quotes in chapter one where we get this glorious picture of the supremacy of Jesus. Do you remember what he said about him there? He says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So all he is doing is showing us that Jesus, as our high priest, he's not just a man who's chosen from among us to represent us, but he is also God himself. And all of his beauty and all of his power. And it was necessary that he be both because God, get this, God is the one that you and I have sinned against and God alone is the one who can provide the sacrifice that we need. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Do you remember what he says next in chapter one there? After saying that he upholds the universe, he says this, verse three, after making purification for sins, what did the son of God do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we see the same idea there in verse 14 of our passage where he says that Jesus has passed through the heavens. So stop for a second. If you remember, back to what we said about the day of atonement, that the high priest would pass through the veil into the most holy place, into the most holy place where God was. And he went there to make purification for sins. But here's the thing, he wouldn't stay there. He would come back out. But what we see here is that what Jesus has done is infinitely better. That he has passed through the heavenly one and with his own blood as the sinless sacrifice and our substitute made purification for our sins and it was perfect. He atoned for our sins once and for all and how do we know that? How can you rest assured this morning that your sins have been atoned for? That you are forgiven. What does it say there? It says that he sat down and he didn't just sit down anywhere. 
He sat down in the most holy place right next to God as both our representative as a man and our redeemer as our God. And so he's saying here that Jesus is infinitely better than the Old Testament priests because they never sat down. Their work was never done. There were always sins to be atoned for and sacrifices to be made. And so when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. He's saying that atonement has been accomplished and that God's wrath has been satisfied. The work is done. And so he sat down and he rested. And the good news for us this morning is that because Jesus rested from his work, you and I by faith can rest in him. Because our salvation has been secured through his sacrifice. So we see that Jesus is also fully God. And here's the last thing that I want us to see about his superiority. We read there in verse 6. He's quoting Psalm 110. He's going to do that several more times in this letter. It's going to become his favorite psalm to quote. It says that Jesus is also a priest forever. He, God says, also in another place. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to get to Melchizedek later in chapter 7. So I'm not really going to talk about him here. But the thing that I do want to highlight is that he is contrasting Jesus' priesthood, which is eternal, just like Melchizedek's. It has no beginning. It has no end. With the Levitical priesthood, which is temporary. And here's the thing. Because it was temporary, it was insufficient. Because Aaron and all of his sons to all the generations died. And so they couldn't continue to represent people to God. But that is not Jesus. He lives forever. His priesthood is eternal, which means, now get this, which means we will have always a man in heaven to represent us one who is truly man and truly God. And so our salvation, brothers and sisters, is secure in him. Jesus is a superior high priest. So all of that said, all of that in mind, what should be our response? What practical difference should this make in our lives knowing that we have a high priest like us? You might be sitting there asking your question, why is this relevant for me? The writer here gives us two exhortations, two points of application, and we'll end with these. He says there in verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. And then verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. What is our confession? It's our hope in the gospel. It's what we believe about who Jesus is and what he has done for us and what we have seen so clearly in this passage is that he is for us and that he's not against us. He is sympathetic. He knows what it is like to walk in our shoes and to face the things that we face. And he is not removed from our suffering He knows our weaknesses and temptations because he took on our humanity, but he never sinned. So who better to help us in our fight against sin than he who conquered it at every turn? If there is anyone who knows how to persevere 
If there is anyone who knows what it means to keep faith and to overcome temptation and to turn from sin, it is Jesus and he is our help and he is our advocate. He is in heaven at this very moment representing us and is working to bring us into his final rest. So don't look to anyone or anything else, but continue looking to Jesus. Keep clinging to the gospel because there is no one better to represent you or to reconcile you. That is why we should hold fast our confession because it really is good news for us. And then the second exhortation, he tells us how we can actually do this in practice. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the thing, when you are afraid, or you are confused, or you are facing temptation, or you have fallen into some sin, don't turn away from Jesus. Don't run from him. Run to him. Think about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for you. Because of his sinless life and his substitutionary death, you now have access to God. You can go behind the veil because the veil has been removed. So go to him in prayer again and again. Know all that you have in in Christ Jesus. You no longer have to approach God in fear, but you can go to him confidently as his child. And when we do, when we are facing some temptation or we have fallen into some sin, or we have some need, we will find him merciful and compassionate and merciful and powerful and he will give what we need when we need it. So ask him. Because here's the thing, when we die one day and we stand before God to give an account for the way that we lived our life, we will not be able to say to him on that day that we did not have all that we needed to live a life that honored him. And the reason we won't be able to do that is because Jesus will be sitting there. Let me end like this. Just the other day, I was watching an interview with George Clooney, um, who grew up Catholic. And he was talking about how when he was a boy growing up in a small town, that he would go to the priest and confess his sins. And because the priest knew everybody, because it was a small town, he could recognize your voice. Um, Clooney said that he would only confess certain sins to him and he would leave the more private ones to himself. But then he said that he, to cleanse himself from his guilt, he said that he would put gravel in his shoes and he would jump off the top of his bunk bed onto the floor as an act of penance to help get the guilt off. You know, a lot of us, I think, still think that way. And what we've seen here is that Jesus is better than that. We don't have to fear going to the Father through him. For those who are in Christ, his throne is a throne of grace and you have been totally accepted because of him. And here's the thing, as as our high priest, as the God-man, he already knows everything about us. We can't hide anything from him. He knows us fully. Don't let that paralyze you. Let that free you. 
Because not only does he know you fully, but he loves you fully. The cross proves that he has provided complete forgiveness for sin, and that is the greatest news in the world. So keep looking to Jesus and keep going to him for mercy and grace to endure because there is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you for our great high priest who is sympathetic, who knows our weaknesses. God, I pray you would help us to look to him. Help us to look to him as we face temptation to overcome sin. Help us to look to him when we need mercy because we've messed up yet again. Thank you for everything that he is and everything that he has accomplished on our behalf. It's in his beautiful name we pray, amen.